0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester.
1: John chapter 4. So, beginning with verse 1, it says, Therefore... "...when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that uh, Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria." Now, if you read that verse there, it kind of jumps out at you. Well, obviously it jumps out here because I bolded it, but it jumps out at you. It's like, okay, what's the significance of Jesus or of John writing that Jesus needed to go through Samaria? Well, to understand the significance, you need to understand who the Samaritans were. And uh, when the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by the Babylonians, they took almost everyone captive to Babylon uh, in exile. But they didn't take everybody. They left behind the poorest, the most insignificant, the lowest class of people they left behind in the land. They were of no value to the Babylonians. And so rather than la- allowing the land to just go wild, they, they let these people stay. And they didn't really want them <clears throat> in Babylon. Excuse me. Well, those people, those Jews who eventually, who were left behind, they eventually, through generations, they intermingled with the surrounding peoples, the other nations around them, who slowly came into that region once the Jews were in exile. And the Samaritans, they emerged as an ethnic and religious group of this intermingled people of Jews and Gentiles that had intermarried and and had children, And so the Samaritans, they had a very historical connection to the people of Israel, but they practiced their faith with a mixture of the Law of Moses, because they observed some of the Law of Moses, but they also adopted superstitions of the peoples around them. So it was kind of a a pseudo-Judaism. And uh, to the Jews, the Samaritans were considered half-breeds, uh, who had practiced a paganized form of Judaism and as a result most Jews in Jesus time despised the Samaritans in fact the most pious Jews if they had to travel from Judea to Galilee or Galilee to Judea you would if you were taking a straight route you'd be going through Samaria but the most pious Jews rather than going straight through they would go around because they didn't even want to go through the land of that pagans, those, those half-breed pagan-type people. And so they would go out of their way to avoid Samaria. And so the significance here that John writes, that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Why? Well, because as we're going to read, he was about to have a divine appointment with a Samaritan. Verse 5, So he came to a city of Samaria which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour would have been uh, about noon. Verse 7, A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Um, So there's significance here in the fact that it was the noon hour, because the women in that culture, they typically came to the well to draw water earlier in the morning. So this is midday, basically. And typically, a woman wouldn't come by herself down to the well. The Samaritan woman would come in groups. They would go together. It was almost like a social thing, maybe for protection. For whatever reason, they go together. This woman is going by herself at an odd hour. And so there's significance there. Um, <clears throat> and as we're going to read, there's probably a reason why she was by herself. Because even... You know, to the Jews, the Samaritans were considered low class and and kind of an outcast in society. But this woman was like an outcast of the outcasts. And we'll see why, because of her her reputation. Now, it was unusual for a rabbi to speak to a woman, for a Jewish rabbi to speak to a woman, uh, let alone a Samaritan woman. And it was even more unusual to ask a drink from her. Now, those of you that are mothers, when you read that verse, it says, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Doesn't that sound kind of like he's demanding? He didn't even say, please. He didn't say, please give me a drink. That's what we always teach our kids, right? You say, please, right? Well, in our language, and, and as we read it, it sounds like he's just making a sexist demand. Hey, woman, give me a drink, you know? That's what it sounds like. But when you study the Greek, it actually turns out to be a very polite request. And so it wasn't, he wasn't making a demand. So I just want to clear that up right, right there out from the beginning. So verse 9, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So this request for water, boy, it really caught this woman off guard. It was an unusual and it was an unexpected gesture of kindness from a Jewish man and a rabbi, recognized as a rabbi. Um, So she was caught off guard. And notice how Jesus is the one who says, must need go go through Samaria he's the one that initiates the conversation with this woman. Now, I can just imagine in my mind's eye that Jesus is sitting here by this well, the heat of the day, he's just resting, and the Samaritan woman comes up, and there's only the two of them there at the well. I believe, well, Scripture doesn't say it, but I believe had Jesus not said anything to her, there wouldn't have been a conversation. She would have have known, hey, Jews don't speak to, to Samaritans. A man doesn't speak to a woman. A rabbi definitely doesn't speak to me. And she would have just done her thing and he would have just sat there had Jesus not said anything and that divine appointment would have passed. But Jesus did speak to her. And man, I tell you, she wasn't ready for that. Verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Notice how Jesus draws the Samaritan woman into a conversation, and he's making her curious about the things of God, about who Jesus is, and about what he can give to her. Verse 11, The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, excuse me, give me this water, that I may not come here to draw. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have said, Well, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one who you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. And Jesus knew the heart of this woman. He knew the situation. Jesus used supernatural knowledge in ministering to this woman. And whenever you and I are ministering to people you know, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit. We need to be praying and asking the Holy Spirit to empower us when we share the gospel with others. And, you know, it, it's interesting that God will do that. Sometimes God, you know, you don't even know what you're sharing. So now, Jesus knew this situation, but I, I and I know some of you, probably many of you, have had that situation where you're sharing with somebody and it's like the Holy Spirit. It's not even you talking to them. It's the Holy Spirit's just drilling right into their heart because he's the one that's given you the words to speak. And this is what's happening here. Verse 19, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now, the Samaritans believe that Moses had commissioned an altar on Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is in this region, Mount, uh, uh, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, the mountain of blessing and the mountain of cursing. It's up in towards the West Bank there in in uh, northern Israel, and uh, <clears throat> actually the town of Nablus. You've heard of Nablus in the news. It's a Palestinian town that actually sits between the two mountains. And Mount Gerizim was the mountain of blessing, and so they believe that that Moses had commissioned an altar to be ble- to be built on that mountain there. And so that was their justification for their system of worship that they did up there in Samaria, as opposed to the law, which said that you must go to Jerusalem to the temple to worship God. That's where God wanted to be worshiped. So they had kind of adopted their own form of worshiping God. Boy, people do that today all the time, don't they? Yeah, the Bible says this, but you know, my God's not like that. This is how I worship my God. And So they were doing the same thing, basically. One thing that you can notice here, you know, Jesus really dealt with the issue of the heart. I mean, just right down to the issue, yeah, you've had more than one husband, and the one that you're living with is not your husband. And notice how it seems as though the woman is trying to change the subject, and she's trying to enter into an argument with Jesus. Doesn't that happen sometimes when you're sharing the gospel with someone and you kind of hit... You kind of hit a little hit a nerve with them. And uh very often they'll either try to change the subject. In fact, you know, if you're tired of talking to somebody and you want to get it real quiet, just say start talking about Jesus and conversation. Quite frequently will just shut down, you know. Um, and anyways, this woman tried to change the subject, and she tried to enter in an argument with Jesus. And notice that Jesus doesn't take the bait to argue with her. Verse 21. Jesus said to her. And truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? They're a little bit clueless of what's going on at the moment there. Jesus said to them, verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest now if you can imagine yourself and jesus is saying this to the disciples i in my mind i'm like what is he what is he talking about look the harvest is ready is he pointing to maybe there's a field off to the side and it's harvest time and the, and the you know and he's using that is he speaking metaphorically here's what i think is happening i think that while jesus is speaking these words with the disciples Remember the woman of Samaria, she would already gone off to Sychar and told the people, hey, there's a guy here, the prophet who's told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And he says, then the men came out with her to see Jesus. And as Jesus, as this is taking place and Jesus is talking to uh, his disciples, I can just imagine, you know, that the disciples are facing Jesus and Jesus is maybe facing Sychar. And as he's Or maybe it's off to the side or something. And as he's talking, these men are starting to walk towards Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, look, the field, look, the harvest is ripe. Verse 36, and he said to them, And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the, Jew, of, excuse me, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. What an amazing situation that occurred based on Jesus' going out of his way to go to a people group that were outcasts or people that were different than him and striking up a conversation with them. And all of this stuff unfolds and these people come to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of that divine appointment. The reason why I bring up this passage of Scripture is what the Lord's really laid on my heart. Is there a group of people like the Samaritans in your and my life today? Are there people that are, uh, you know, different than us? Are there people who have little to know unnecessary, or that we have little to no unnecessary interactions with? In other words, we wouldn't go out of our way to go start striking up a conversation with a group of people. Is there a group of people who we would rather avoid than having to talk with. You know, because that, that was their issue, the Samaritans. But who are our Samaritans? Who are the people that we would rather not talk to or we would rather avoid unless we absolutely had to? You know, this is what the Lord's laid on my heart, is that the Muslim man or the Muslim woman in our community, to me, are like the Samaritans were to the Jews. Because if you go into a store, and I've, you know, they're typical, you know, we don't talk with each other, typically, unless you have to. And typically, people avoid each other. And, and I've noticed that they avoid me, and there are times when I avoid them. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one. You guys are not that way, but I think that's, I think that's typical in this, in this community. I want to challenge each one of us this morning, because I've felt challenged about this myself, to take Jesus' example here in John chapter 4 and to apply it to reaching our Muslim neighbors for Jesus Christ in this community. Jesus purposely engaged with that Samaritan woman in a conversation. You know, he didn't get into a theological discussion. He didn't argue with her. He didn't. He, he just asked her for a drink of water. He just struck up a conversation with her he turned it to the lord eventually but he just he broke the ice he didn't wait for her to come to him he talked to her and i want to encourage you this morning to purposely engage muslim men and women in our community to talk to them how do you do that well if you're you know involved in the community they're involved in the community you can get involved and talk to them in that place There are probably some of you that work right alongside with Muslim men and women. Uh, Those of you that are in school, there's a lot of Muslims in school. In fact, just go to just about any place of business here in town, and you're likely to interact with a clerk or see a clerk wearing a burqa or somebody who you know is Middle Eastern descent. And, And so they're out there. They're right in our community. But if you're like me, typically it's like, you know, I want to look for the shortest line in the grocery store. (laughs) You know, that line's open. I'm going to go there. I want to challenge you this, as I'm going to challenge myself this. Look for the Muslim person and look for them and go to their line. Maybe it's a little bit longer. Maybe you have to wait five minutes longer in the grocery store. But purposely go to them and try uh, try to strike up a conversation. Well, how do you strike up a conversation with a Muslim? just by saying that to them. Now, I'll pronounce it. I'm, I don't speak Arabic very well, but Assalam salaam alaikum And I've heard it say, you just say Salam alaikum Salaam means peace. It looks kind of like Jewish shalom. Salam means peace. Whoops, what happened here? Well, that was interesting. Okay. Hmm. Hang on a minute. Something may be timed out here. That was really... Okay. I think. And now for the Lego movie. <laughs> All right. You're supposed to take him to a movie or what? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Oh, boy. Okay, hang on a second. What happened? Oops, I hit the enter. <laughs> I don't want to hit the enter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. At least that's gone there. Okay. Let's try it again here. Hang on a second. Something timed out here. I've not had this happen yet. Ah. Uh, that would probably be it. You know what? That was it. Amazing. Okay. Let me jump down to where I was before I was so rudely interrupted. Okay, there we go. Okay. So I, you know, it says, uh, I looked on a website, but I've said, salam Alaikum. And they, it, what it basically means is, peace be unto you. Very simple thing to say. I guarantee if you say it to an Arabic person, Arabic speaker, you'll surprise them. Because they're not expecting uh, an American uh, to say that to them. And typically, they will respond to you with, wa alaqim salam," which basically means, and unto you peace. You can just strike up a conversation just that simply, saying that to a person. Then you can, of course, start talking. Unless you know more Arabic, you can keep going. But uh, um, it'll definitely... It'll definitely uh, surprise them. Notice that Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. We have to ask ourselves, you know, what are we living for? What's our purpose here in this community? And, and why does God have us here? Why does God have all these people around us? Jesus wanted to do the will of God's, uh, of the Father. And that was, I mean, that was his food. That's what he, that's just what, that's what he did, you know. And, uh, and so we have to ask ourselves, uh, if we have that same attitude. Notice Jesus also told the disciples. He said, "For then this the saying is true: one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored and uh, for that which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. You don't know how many times if you are going to be the sower of the seed, or if you're going to be the harper the excuse me the reaper of the harvest you don't know that and sometimes and probably more often than not you'll be the one sowing seed but there are those times when god's going to give you the blessing the opportunity of being the reaper of the harvest why am i sharing all of this because right now i honestly believe deep down in my heart that god has been preparing a great harvest He's been planting seeds and he's preparing a great harvest before his return and he's looking for workers. He's looking for those who are to go into the field. What's There's a phenomenon that's happening worldwide that is just, it's mind-boggling. In Joel 2.28... Verse 29 It says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, if you've known that scripture, you'll recognize that that is the scripture that Peter quoted at Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost when the pouring the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples and they all started speaking in different tongues and this and Peter later gets up and he says, well this is what uh, this is what this is speaking about Now he is speaking about uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit which one of the manifestations was the, the, the distribution of the tongues, the speaking in tongues the fulfillment of this prophecy but you know what's interesting? All throughout the New Testament, we also see evidences of dreams and visions. Just to give you a few. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, had a vision of an angel. Jesus' trans, uh, transfiguration, it's described as a vision for the disciples. The women who came to visit Jesus' tomb had a vision of angels. Stephen saw a vision of Jesus at his death. John had many visions on the island of Patmos. Paul had a revelation of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul also had a vision of a man from Macedonia asking him to come to that region to help. Paul also had an encouraging vision when he was in Corinth. Paul, excuse me, Paul also had a vision of an angel on the ship that was about to be wrecked. And as we read not too long ago on Wednesday night, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul had that vision of paradise. So it's not an unusual thing for that we see in the New Testament of dreams and visions to occur. Now, as I'm saying this, you might be saying, whoa, it sounds like he's going to go into those dreams and visions, and that's going to be you know, our focus. The Bible tells us, Paul warns us about Satan, that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. And Paul also wrote to the Galatians, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And so I'm not advocating that we depart from Scripture and start putting all our focus on dreams and visions and start focusing on that. We need discernment. But there is something that is occurring today in the Muslim world, in the Arabic countries, that I don't believe is deception. I believe Jesus himself is reaching to the Muslims who are behind, they're in, they're in, they're in uh, such uh, uh, bondage. In nations where you and I, as a, we couldn't go as a missionary and preach the gospel. But Jesus has not given up on those people. And Jesus himself is appearing to people in the Middle East. Jesus said, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And I believe we're seeing a field that's being ripened for harvest and uh, it's in a different Muslim, or excuse me, in a different people group, the Muslim people. Jesus Christ is reaching Muslims today. And I just finished reading this book, and I would encourage you to get it and read it. It's called Dreams and Visions. It's a guy by the name of Tom Doyle. And he goes through and he'll, he'll pick, uh, uh, you, pick you could name the Arabic country, and he'll—he's got different chapters dealing with different countries and examples of people of Muslims who've received visions of Jesus. And in most of those cases, Jesus appears to them. They—they—they uh, they, they understand or they have the sense that it's Jesus, and it's not a different gospel. Basically, what it is is it all of a sudden it gets them curious. And many times in their vision, they'll see a person. And they'll find that person in the marketplace or they'll find a, they'll see a place. He's got all these examples of this. And what it is, is is Jesus is leading people to Christians in those nations. It's fascinating. But I encourage you to read that book if you get a chance. It'll really open your eyes. So what's the challenge? This church here, Calvary Chapel, Rochester, it started as a great move of God in the hearts of a baby boomer generation. There were all these hippies, all these people that were basically this this whole group of of young people that were alienated from their parents' church. And Jesus got a hold of these people and, and touched their hearts, radically transformed them. And Pastor Chuck Smith, who was the first pastor of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa... He was there at the right time, at the right place, and he was available for the Lord. And he took a step of faith. It wasn't very popular with the other churches and denominations, letting all these hippies into their churches. But he took a step of faith, and the Calvary Chapel movement exploded. And we're another generation. of This church is, is a result of that movement of the Holy Spirit during the 60s and the 70s. Well, I believe... That God is now moving, particularly in the Muslim nations, and it's been in the last ten years or so. This is very recent. And so the challenge, let's be a part of what God's doing in these last days. Let's 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 sense what the Spirit is saying and what the Spirit is doing, and let's be a part of what He's doing in these last days. And so, what's the plan? Well, like I said before, I want to encourage you. To meet Muslims in the marketplace and in, in your place of business and you know wherever, go out of your way to start a conversation with them. It might feel uncomfortable, it might be someone that you might not but I want to encourage you to take a step of faith, pray and ask the Lord Lord, give, just give me the boldness. And again, you're not arguing with them you' just you're just showing them the love of Christ because one thing that the Muslim people that come to faith in Christ, what draws them to Christianity, to a faith in Christ, it's the love of Christians. It's the love. It's not the, it's not the, did you know that Muhammad is a false prophet? And, you know, it's not the arguing them into the kingdom. It's the love of Christ that compels them. And that's how they reach them. So meet Muslims. Get to know them on a name basis. If it's a person that's a clerk in a store, go to that same clerk as m- many times as you go into that store, look for that clerk and, and, and talk to them and, and build up a, a, to, to the point where you know them by name. You know, maybe the first time you can just surprise them with that salam alaykum and they'll say, "Ah!" Oh, and you know, just ask, "Hey, what's your name? What country are you from?" Just that's simple. But get to know them on a first name basis, and then give them a gift. And what gift is that? Now we have like three cases of these books. I got them in my house. They're called "Glad News: God Loves You, My Muslim Friend." He's from Sammy Tanago. Sammy Tanago is one of the ministries, one of the missionaries that we support here at Calvary Chapel Rochester. And don't just hand him a book. I, I Sammy said, you know, when, I, when we first got these books, he says, just don't go up to a Muslim and say, well, here's a book about Jesus. Don't do that. He says, they won't take it. They won't receive it. But if you become a friend, at least a first name basis, and you get, say, you know, what? I have a gift for you, and you write in there... Put your name in there. This is a personal gift for you. He says, in that culture, they they accept it because you've given them a gift. It's just their culture. And so that's how you and I can start planting seeds in the people in our community. And then what I want to challenge you to do is let us know when you start starting, starting to build this relationship and, and you, if you get to the point where you're able to give them one of these books, let us know here at the church where we're going to keep a record of the names of these people. Wednesday nights, we're going to start praying for those people by name every Wednesday night. We're going to pray that Jesus Christ touches their hearts and that they come to faith in the gospel. Prayer changes things. Prayer changes people. So we want to we want to do that. I was sharing this. I, I got a call, or I called Sammy Tanago and I said, "Sammy, this is what's been on my heart." And uh, he said it's great. He goes, "I would invite I would encourage you as you get to know these people, invite them to a picnic. As many of them as possible. You start and just just do a picnic and just just do social things with them because they'll start to it'll 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 change their perception of you it'll give you more opportunity to share the gospel with them. And so that's why I kind of wanted to get this message out earlier in the summer, but just the timing is, is now. But towards the end of summer, I'm hoping that we're going to have a, a, a barbecue picnic and inviting some people, some people, uh, some Muslim people to this. So I want to encourage you and ask you to pray to be a part of this because Jesus Christ is moving in the Muslim world, and it's not just in the. You know, it's interesting. I don't know how many of you read today that uh, there's Somali Somali men here in Minnesota that are actually going to fight in Syria and Iraq right now. I just read it on the news this morning. There's like 15 Somalis that left to go join the ISSI, the ISI, to go fight there. So I mean, we have the opportunity to impact what's happening over there by ministering to people here in Minnesota, particularly in Minnesota. So some statistics, uh, the majority, and I got this from this book that I was reading, it's towards the end of the book, but it says the majority of Islamic growth is through birth, not conversion. It, it seems like, well, the Muslim world's exploding, it's the fastest growing religion. Well, yeah, it's because they have high birth rates. And there's a lot of Muslims being born. Most families, you know, they have a lot of kids. And it's through birth, not through conversion. It's estimated that 82,000 new believers are added to the body of Christ every day. And these are true converts who have repented of their sins and embraced Jesus as their Savior. Islam, on the other hand, often uses threats and persecution to build up the ranks. These conversions are not based on conviction, but are merely survival techniques. This hit home to Teresa and I before we went on our camping trip. We were watching the news, I don't know, it was Wednesday or Thursday, maybe it was Thursday during the day, and on live television, these cameramen were in Iraq, and there is this group of guys... In this truck, and they were they were like in street clothes, and some Sunni Muslim the, the people that are that are you know this ISSI I forgot how they pronounce these people but um, ISIS whatever it is those warriors they're Sunnis they stopped this truck and they suspected that this truck was Shia Muslims because you know these are Muslims killing Muslims it's really sad and so they started asking these 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 men in this truck. Are you Shia? Or I mean, are you Sunni? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're Sunni. And they, they said, well, how many times a day do you pray? And then the, the guy's like, oh, five times a day. You know, whatever. And, then, and you could just, you could sense the fear in their voice. I don't know if any of you saw that. Any of you saw that? Teresa and I, it was just amazing. They're asking these, all these guys all these questions. And they're basically, it's like a litmus test. Do you do this? Do you do that? At the end of it, they go, these guys aren't Sunnis. And they killed them. They just they executed him. It was right there on live TV. It was like, whoa. I mean, I, I don't know. It was just blew us away when that happened. That's what's happening. That's how they're getting converted. You think of all those, those school, elementary children, those girls that were kidnapped. They're being forced to become Muslims. So the Islamic religion is not growing through conversion of people going, oh, this is such a great religion. No, it's through fear and through survival. That's what's happening in other parts of the world. Some more statistics. I don't know if you know who Father Zachariah is, but he's an Egyptian cleric that has a satellite television program. It says it's estimated, he's a Christian, it is estimated that when Father Zachariah, a Christian apologist who debates Islamic clerics, is on television in the Middle East, 60 million viewers watch. 60 million are hearing the gospel. Not only that, in Iran... Seven to nine million Persians watch satellite broadcasts of Hormoz Shariat, the Billy Graham of Iran. And that constitutes uh, 10% of the potential viewership in Iran. I've, I've listened to this guy. I've watched his program. People call in. They talk about their visions of Jesus. And it's amazing The amount of people that are getting saved through this man's ministry. Um, Sammy also shared, Sammy Tanago also shared with me that he is on the verge of starting a satellite program himself to the Muslim world. And so your and my gifts that we're giving to him, we, give him a, we support him financially. It's going for him as he's getting ready to start this ministry. Be in prayer for Sammy. I think he's got a wonderful ministry because his is not a confrontational ministry. He ministers the love of Jesus Christ to the Muslims. So, um, you want to go ahead and start. I was going to do it from here, but we've got to do it from there. Anyways, I want to share this in closing, and then I'll share something right at the end of it. But it's how one Muslim man came to Christ. And before he starts that, I want to just share. This is not a unique, like, oh, that's kind of, that's a really odd one. This is happening over and over and over in the Middle East. Go ahead, Joel. Switching. I need to switch it. Yes, okay.
0: a city called Abadan, born in a Muslim family, shared Muslim family. My grandfather was a Muslim leader. Uh, I joined uh, Hezbollah. Uh, I I was in that army for about three years. Uh, I was studying Quran extensively then. I traveled to Malaysia where I was caught with 30 illegal passports, put in prison. And so I start teaching Islam in in the jail and uh, telling everybody uh, what they must do, what are their duties toward Allah. And so uh, I did this uh, routine uh, every day. I prayed obviously five times a day. Uh, Shiites do pray three times, and they include the seventeen raka'ah in in the uh, three times, but. Uh, What I did, because I wanted to spend more time with with God, I did it at five separate times. And then in the end of the evening, I would uh, pray extra prayers. I would have the habit of uh, reading through the Quran, cover to cover, uh, once every 10 days. And so as I was doing that one night, I, I just uh, was meditating in the verses, and there are, ver- uh, there, there are words in the Quran that are repeated continually, uh, repeatedly, but uh, they have no meanings. They are the secrets of Quran, and so when I was meditating on this, a spirit entered the room, and uh, it was much more powerful than I could handle or I could I could overcome, and so I was filled with fear. And so I tried using all the tools Islam had given me. In the name of Allah, I command you to leave, you know. Uh, Satan, I rebuke you, kind of things. And I used all those, and nothing uh, was, was helping. At that moment, I, I was totally desperate. And I felt like it is choking me, choking the life out of me. And I felt like I'm dying in that cell. And I just cried out to, uh, to the heavens and I said, God in Farsi Khoda, help me. And immediately I heard a voice, just as clear as you hear my voice today, saying, "Bring the name of Jesus. And I, at that moment, I really seriously did not give it one second of thought. I just was, I feel like um, going back, I was drowning. And a man that is drowning, you throw a rope, they would never question you about the color of the rope. And just grab on. Mm-hmm. And so I did. I said, Jesus, if you are true, show me yourself. And to this day, I have no idea of just going back, I'm thinking, why did you word it that way? Why didn't you just say, Jesus, help me? I don't know why, but that's the way it came out. And before I was finished with the sentence, everything was back to normal. Now, that was not my conversion. That was the beginning of my confusion. Why would Jesus help a Muslim? Now, I had done everything in my power to be a good Muslim. I had already uh, tried to go and uh, commit myself uh, in the way of Allah and be a martyr for him, you know, walking on the mines. And so the government of Iran is is used to issue the, the people that are uh, or the ones that are willing to, to give themselves, to sacrifice themselves, a special Quran that had the stamp of the government, that uh, I had participated in the executions by hanging. You know, I had done everything that I thought I must do uh, against the infidels and anything and everything I must do to share Allah with others. Uh, So I, I, I knew that something is wrong and that was not because I doubted Allah or doubted Islam or anything. I fully believed and I didn't know what that is and it just confused me. And so I tried to just forget about it, you know. But that question, why would Jesus help a Muslim? Why would Jesus help a Muslim? That would just keep coming at me. I believe in Muhammad, the last prophet, I would think, in the perfect religion. Why would Jesus come to help me? And so uh, that uh, two weeks period, I just got really confused and I said, okay, I'm going to pray and fast and ask God himself to show me the path. Obviously, I thought at that moment, and there are verses and, and things taught in the Quran that says uh, the ways of Allah are many, and no matter what part and what part of the mountain you climb, you always come to the same uh, mountain top. And I thought, maybe that is what, what God is, you know. And then, no, maybe it is different for God. Maybe God has a specific way for me, and He wants me to follow that specific way. So I thought, I will never find out unless I ask this question. So I did. I prayed and fasted. And from the bottom of my heart, with all my strength, I asked, God, what is it that you want me to do? What way is it that you want me to follow? And so for two weeks I sat in one place and I prayed as many hours as I was awake and I fasted as many hours as I I was awake and I would just fall asleep literally on that place. I would wake up and I would just pray again and again asking God, what is the way you want me? After two weeks to no avail, I had no answer. And I really got frustrated. I just thought, forget it, you know, what is this? I have no chance of finding out what He wants. I don't even know if God exists. And I have wasted all my life. Uh, I have been afraid all my life, you know, trying to do everything that would please Allah. And now He confuses me. If Allah is all great and He sees the heart, He knew in my heart I love Him. And what matters if I call him, whatever name I call him, he knows in my heart I love him. And if it does matter to him, I ask him for two weeks, I sat, prayed, and nothing happens. So, you know what? I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm going to go walk my own path. I'm going to do what pleases me. Obviously, at that very moment, I felt the power of God filled the room. Now in Islam, the greatest sin you can commit, and you can never be forgiven for that, is doubting God himself. Doubting his teachings, doubting his prophet, and I have done that. And in Islam, they teach you that Allah never visits, God never visits human beings. I feel, and I know against Islam I have committed, the greatest sin that can never be forgiven, God's presence is in the room, and I'm confronted immediately with His Holiness. All this is happening simultaneously, and I'm uh, confronted with His Holiness, which puts this weight of sin upon me. And I know, I know, that because He is just, He must kill me. He must wipe me off the face of the earth, because I am so full of sin and I cried because I literally didn't want to die but uh, I knew there was no chance He was so holy and I was so wicked so I just ran to the corner of the room and I held my head in my arms and I just cried out God, forgive me, God, forgive me, God, forgive me, God, forgive me. And I just said, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. And as I was crying and just saying, forgive me, I felt a touch on my shoulder saying, I forgive you. And the very instant those words were spoken, I physically felt forgiven. And I couldn't understand it. I said, wait a minute. We say, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. In the name of God who is merciful and gracious. But we don't know if you are forgiven till the day of judgment. That is why there is not one single verse in the Quran that says, Muhammad is in the heaven. He must wait like all people for the, the, the day of Qiyamah, the day of resurrection, and all shall be judged on that day. So, how is it that... Who is this God that says, I forgive you, and I feel forgiven today? And I asked, I said, who are you? They can forgive me, and I feel forgiven today. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The moment I heard those words, I knew it's of a great importance, but I had absolutely no idea what that meant. I still had no clue who this God is. So I asked him, what is your name? Jesus Christ, the living God, he answered. And the moment he spoke those words, it was as if every single bone was taken out of my body and I just fell on my face to the ground and I started weeping in the presence of God. I just wept. I still can't, in this 18 years have gone by, but I still can't forget His love, His mercy. Now, all the, I can't forget what is for me. And He just forgive you, I feel <laughs> forgiven. I fell on my face. I just wept because for many years I had tried to please God, but that wasn't nothing I thought was pleasing to God. Nothing I had done. It wasn't even the bright God that I had known. I felt so deceived because they told me this is God and He wasn't God. They told me, killing the way of Allah. And then it's God says, Love in the way of me. Forgive in the way of me. And it was everything my heart existed for. Yes, this is the truth of God. God is about forgiveness. God is about love. So I wept for two hours and I just stood at his feet and he just said I should look up at the moment I looked up I saw this it was like a TV screen of some sort I just saw people from all different generations and all different nationalities and backgrounds and every single person I saw I could see every single wrong thing they have done and that overwhelmed me. I just cried said, God I live among all these peoples, all of them are sinners and he says, Afshin how easy did I forgive you? and I said very easy, in Farsi we say as easy as drinking water and then just moments after that I said no 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 even easier than drinking water he says as easy as I have forgiven you I can forgive them who is going to tell them I said send me water. says go that's how I became a Christian so I prayed God send me a Bible uh, in jail somebody from some other section just walked up to me and gave me a book and says this is what you asked for and uh, he was in his Indian background and I spoke Urdu and Hindi uh, completely so uh, so when he gave it to me I knew it is the Bible I forgot to thank the God I said God I prayed last night and you gave it to me this morning it is so wonderful you answer you are the mighty God that is spoken of and you provide so quickly that is the living Word of God I tell you this I share my testimony, so people hear about this Almighty God. I don't expect anybody to become a Christian because of my testimony. My testimony is only good for me. I want people to understand this. This is the story of Almighty God that is all able, and that is searching for all seeking hearts that loves all humanity with all his strength and power. If someone hears my testimony today, I really like them to just say, okay, God of heaven, the creator of everything, if this is true, I want that. And I assure you, I can guarantee you that mighty God that came and touched and changed my life and and totally forgive everything I have done. And He made me sure that I can be in heaven with Him. He can assure them of the same assurance, and He can let them taste of the same forgiveness and same love. And that is who Jesus Christ is. May glory be to Him, today and forevermore. Amen.
1: Thanks, Joel. That is not a unique story. It's happening over and over and over and over again in the Middle East. And one thing I wanted you to catch from that testimony, these people, these Muslims, they're religious. They're seeking God. They're aware of sin. They're aware of punishment for sin and hell. And they're deceived. They're in bondage. And, and you and I, man, we have the opportunity to share the love of Christ with them. And so I just want to encourage you, um, you know, you could go down to Rochester Festus this week and you could go on the street, I've done it before, try sharing the gospel with people and quite frequently uh, with people, you know, in, this, in our culture, they don't want to hear it. And, but Muslims, they are very religious, they are seeking truth. But they're deceived, and so just want to encourage you this morning and I also want to just lay a challenge to each of you um, i want I want to just close in prayer and uh, want to invite you to stand up if you want to be a part uh, of what God is doing in these last days to reach Muslims. I really want to just pray with you pray for you and uh and and uh We'll go from there. So um, we'll close at this point. If you would like prayer, if you want me to pray for you, it's like, you know what, this is really touching my heart. I want to be a part of what God's doing these last days. I challenge you. I encourage you stand up and, and let's pray, okay?